Welcome to this episode of Pen to Paper Press Podcast. I'm Cindy Coaches. There is a backstory weaved into each written project we create. To explore the creative process, I'm sitting down with authors, writers, editors, publishers, and an array of creative souls to have a conversation centered on how they develop their stories to completing their works of art. Each episode is an opportunity for us to explore mindsets, pros of wisdom, and the life experiences that began our journey as an author from the moment we put pen to paper. Michael Winstead is an attorney weaving legal thrillers and granting us the opportunity to follow adventures inside the courtroom and the lives of his characters. He wrote the ultimate trilogy, Ultimate Verdict, Ultimate Deception, and The Ultimate Truth. Love that title. (laughs) And he recently uh, published Ella's Wings. Michael, it is good to have you here and to have this conversation. I'm looking forward to what we uncover. Well, it's good to see you, Cindy, and thanks for having me. You are very welcome. You know, I was looking over information and it always interests me when I'm speaking to attorneys that are writers, because Writing has a way for us to look at ourselves and because it's our interpretations that we're sharing with our audience. And, and it also, when we're writing, we're, we're looking differently at people like for reactions. Okay. How can I put that into wording? How can I get that message across? We're looking for those different angles. And so you know, we become more aware of things much differently. And, you know, as an attorney, you have witnessed some of the most traumatic life experiences for people, and you've guided them, you know, guided them through the judicial system. So what was it like for you when you decided that you were going to evolve your your role into becoming a writer when you were like in the courtroom and and you're in with these people who are going through these traumatic events because I mean typically that's what happens in a courtroom something traumatic is happening or has happened so how did it affect how you look at people and witness how they do things so that when you're writing it it shows up on the page well before i became an attorney i think i was naive and and probably a bit ignorant about what really went on in a courtroom and the piece that you miss is the emotion and the impact that being ensnared in the judicial system uh, has on people's lives it's a very traumatic event most of the clients that I represented were individuals or small businesses, and the lawsuits that we were in uh, were life-altering events. So what I tried to do is understand and recognize the emotions that were present in my clients, the impact that it was having on them, and then distance myself enough from it that I could tell their story. So when I write fiction, 
I try to recreate that atmosphere. I try to to build the suspense up so that a reader understands what a party is going through in the courtroom. And sometimes it's the, it's the participants, not just the clients. Sometimes it's the attorneys and in the ultimate trilogy, obviously it's the judge, you know, what they're going through and how they're dealing with all these things and bring the reader into the courtroom because a great number of the readers have never been there and hopefully in their lives will never have to be there. Right. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, I, you know, even for someone who's got a speeding ticket and, and is trying to get out of it, that's still, it's not as traumatic as going through a divorce or, or criminal charges being, you know, put up against you, whatever, but it's still a nerve wracking experience. And you're right. The emotions, a lot of people, you know, when you see it on TV, um, they portray one person as good, one person as evil. But what people forget is there are two people or two groups of people who are going through something very emotional. And to portray that into written word um, must have been, because I'm sure you've seen, quote unquote, you've seen it all. <laughs> um Putting those emotions into written form is not always easy. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Right, it's 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 not always easy, and and the goal is to neither overshoot nor undershoot in portraying the emotion. Uh, it's it's not an easy thing to achieve, uh, and those scenes in which I write about. Uh, what a character is feeling, and that's often through you know dialogue or somebody else's observation, are probably the scenes that I spend the most time revising because uh, I want it to be authentic. And right. it's it's very easy to make it melodramatic. Uh, it's very easy to overshoot how someone is really feeling and turn every emotion into you know a devastating event. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do, and it just requires a lot of work. It does. It does. And also to give your characters different voices and different personalities. So you're having to pay attention to all of that. With having written a trilogy, with a trilogy, you there are there is content that has to remain consistent throughout the book. So what was your process for keeping that, <laughs> you know, just to keep a notebook? How did you do it so that you kept, you know, the consistency through, you know, of your main character throughout the book? Uh, so with the first book, Ultimate Verdict, I wrote uh, a semblance of an outline for the book and did what I would call a character study on the main character who is a, a federal judge uh, so that I would remember details about his personality, uh, the way he looks, the kind of car he drove, the name of his dog, you know, on and on and on. <clears throat> and developing that that character study, which is several pages long, helped me to be able to go back and, and remember that. The, the other thing that's consistent throughout the book, which is actually very helpful, is the sense of place. So 
the the trilogy takes place in Western North Carolina, primarily from the judge's perspective in the Asheville area and surrounding mountains. And then there are some scenes uh, that also take place in, in Charlotte. So I developed that sense of place, the idea of it becoming a minor character because it meant so much to the judge. Um, the judge in, in my book is uh, a Native American. He's uh, part Cherokee and he's also a runner. So to him, his physical surroundings, nature, uh, being able to essentially escape the rigors of his job um, into the confines of nature was a really important aspect of the story. So that's a main theme that goes all the way through and helps to keep it. Interesting. That's really interesting. So then moving those details from your first book to the second to the third, you kept going back to this, well, these sheets of paper to confirm that you didn't change uh, like his dog's name by accident or anything. Because that is something that we as writers will will get writing through a process and if we set it down for any amount of time then there's that lapse of oh was his name rover or was it eddie <laughs> right so and those are important because our audience they'll find them they'll they'll find those details they will <laughs> they'll they'll let you know about it Yes, they will. And some are nice about it and some are not so nice about it. <laughs> um, so one thing that I'm curious about is when you were writing your books and, and getting into this uh, role, did you spend time with other writers uh, or did you just read about, you know, the process? How did you how did you build your process up? Great question. Um, you know, it, it, it's always a work in progress. I think that a, every writer has a different evolutionary process as to how they get there. And, and mine has certainly changed over time. So the, what I found to be a, a difficult stumbling block to overcome is that in the process of being an attorney, I wrote lots of legal briefs and motions and things of that nature. And that process requires you to basically inform the reader what you're going to tell them and then tell them in intricate detail the the gist of your argument with lots of supporting evidence and exhibits and then sum up what you just told them. In my view, for my particular writing style, using that technique is disastrous uh, for a fiction writer because it leaves nothing to the reader's imagination. It doesn't allow the reader to evoke their own take on a description of a particular scene or dialogue. Instead, it forces the argument, the story down their throats. And that, that, that's necessary for, for legal writing because every fact and every detail is critically important. So probably the biggest revelation for me was the understanding 
that I had to distance myself from that paradigm of writing and do something different, which was to let go a little bit. And the way I, I did that is I let the characters tell me how the story was going to proceed. And my method is, you know, it's, it's uh, may not work for everybody, but what I would do is I would write as much as I could write in the morning before I went off to the office. And then while I was taking a shower and preparing for the day, I would try to let my characters in. Like, what, what are you going to do tomorrow? You know, we would have these <laughs> private conversations. What if I put you in this scene? And sometimes I would, you know, the response would be, yes, perfectly consistent with who I am. I would want to do that, et cetera. And sometimes it'd be, no, 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 that's not me. You know, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't develop this particular relationship. Um, so that's how I got started. And then the process evolved even further because I am a recovering perfectionist. And what I found out was that in, in writing, I would start with the first chapter, get through that, revise, 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 revise until I thought it was perfect. And then I would go to the second chapter, finish that, revise and revise and revise until I thought it was perfect, and then realize that now I had to revise the first chapter. So mm -hmm. I was spending an extraordinary amount of time on chapters one and two. And I, I heard something today, uh, I'm sorry, this weekend at a funeral of all places where um, it, it kind of captured the place I was in uh, at the time. And one of the sons of the gentleman who had passed away described him as a great starter and a poor finisher. And that describes where I was. So in order to alleviate that, I guess, writer's block, I talked to a friend of mine who was an artist, and she talked to me about to, uh, how she paints landscapes. And she said, Mike, you know, when I paint a landscape, I don't stop in the upper left-hand corner of the canvas and paint my way across it and then down and then finish in the lower right-hand corner. That's how you read a book. That's not how you paint, and it's probably not how you write a book. Right. And I thought, well, she's probably right about that. So, so I took her advice and I began to write basically from the beginning all the way through, no matter how bad, because um, first drafts are always terrible. And <laughs> yes. then I went back and began to layer in the important things to include uh, sharper dialogue, um, evoke the senses by putting in things where people could smell or taste or hear certain things, adding color, um, adding shadow, taking some of the more direct narrative and making it more nuanced and, and things like that. So that, that's, that's the process that I'm still working on now. And that artist gave you the biggest pearl of wisdom that it sounds like just kind of went, your mind went, okay, I can do this. And, and let go of some of that need to have it like published ready as you're writing. Because, you know, <laughs> I don't know of a writer yet that can sit down and write a book of, of any length 
and not go back and have to re-edit or, or like you said, develop the character, develop the scene, develop the whole, well, the storyline. And I, and I like how you worded it layering because that's exactly, that's a great description of it is we are layering the story. We are layering the elements so that as we uncover the story, you find more. It's kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion because we ourselves are always in a state of evolving and development and our stories should be too, because our characters are not, you know, <laughs> it, it's not, we're not single pained, you know, we have depth. <laughs> well, there, there are, there are books where the, the characters, not usually the protagonist, but where the characters are shallow. And I find those books not to be particularly enjoyable. Right. Um, what, one thing that, that I try to do is set up a scenario and then explore how the characters deal with it, how they react to it. So I, I tend more toward depth in the storytelling than I tend toward breadth. I, I typically don't cover a, a wide horizon, but instead I focus more on, um, you know, sometimes the psychology of it, the reaction, uh, you know, what makes in, in, in this particular case, um, what gives Judge Westlake satisfaction and elation? Uh, what plunges him into a, a temporary depression? Those kinds of things, you know, motivating factors and then allow enough room for the reader to participate in that. So I, I try not to give so much detail that the reader has no room to imagine the situation or imagine how they would feel in the situation. And, right. and I'll, I'll give you an example. So in the opening scene of Ultimate Verdict, uh, a young woman is riding up the uh, Blue Ridge Parkway on a bicycle and she gets attacked by somebody. And then we, we cut out most of the, the grisly aspect of it until a park ranger stumbles upon the scene a couple of days later and the snow has fallen. So you start with this pristine mountain view, almost blindingly white, and he sees off in the distance a slash of red. So the reader can put into that their own experiences of what's it like to ride a bicycle? What's it like to be on a snow covered mountain? What's it like to discover something that you hadn't expected to discover? And that's the difference between the way I write fiction and the way I wrote legal memorandum. Yes. Uh, yeah. Cause you can't really do that in a courtroom. <laughs> well, yeah. He saw it, a patch of red up ahead. And <laughs> if, if you have no case, you can try that, but I don't know that it would work very well. Because, you know, you're not my first attorney that I've talked to on on this podcast, and I truly am finding it interesting to to listen to you as, you know, as an attorney switching gears and letting go of the strategy, because when you're an attorney, there is a strategy there's a point and you're trying to get, you're trying to get to the point, not 
fluff it up. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to condense the fluff to just, you know, what are the details? What what is pertinent here? What is important? Not, you know, that, you know, they received a phone call from their mother at whatever about whatever. Whereas with fictional writing, it's, it's like you're using this whole other side of your brain, this whole aspect of writing skills. And so I, I've been finding it fascinating because it's like what makes, you know, is it that you're wanting a creative outlet? What, what was it that made you say, I'm going to write a fiction book? <laughs> Well, my, my wife has said on occasion that I've returned to childhood, that, you know, when we were adolescents, we all used to create imaginary friends and play games that required imagination, and and, and that now I've gone back there. And frankly, it's, it's very freeing to write fiction because the law is a stifler of creativity. There's very little place in legal proceedings and be creative. We have, uh, you know, 400 page books of rules. Uh, We have thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of cases that tell us, you know, where the line is, what we can say, what we can do, what we can't say, what we can't do, et cetera. So when I started writing fiction, I was still practicing law. I'm mostly retired now. And I found it difficult to take off my lawyer's hat at the end of the day and put on my writer's hat because those thoughts kept bombarding me. And it was like, well, you know, you can't say this, you can't do that. You can't write this way. Oh, your character wouldn't do that because, you know, there are all these rules that restrict him. Everything became very sterile and staid and unexciting. Um, so when I was able to, to write more frequently and without the strictures of the rules that governed us as lawyers, it became a much more enjoyable process. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Because you're letting it go. You're letting go of, of this is how it has to be. And this is the policy. Because with creativity, there is no policy. <laughs> right. And and there, there are rules, but at times, most of those rules can be broken if it it's at the appropriate point and it works for your story and your characters. Right. So yeah, you're right. There's not, there's not much confinement when you're, when you're writing fiction. Well, and who sets the rules that's, you know, and, and that is something as a rebellious little bugger that I can be at times is who made that rule? Who said it has to be that way? Of course, that whole mindset of mine (laughs) or personality trait really annoys people but um it gets me you know asking the questions what can you know what can I do that's different and can I do what I feel is appropriate for me can I do it that way well the nature of, of rules and laws specifically is really at the center of the ultimate trilogy and, and so what, what happens there is um, this federal judge, his name is Raleigh Westlake, he, he's devoted his life to following the rules and um, supporting the Constitution. And he finds in this one particularly traumatic case that following the rules does not do justice. And 
that's not a unique concept. Sometimes following the rules doesn't equate to justice. He decides, I've had it. I, I'm, I'm not going to continue within a system that doesn't do justice, that, that actually harms the victims even further by, on occasion, letting their letting their murderers and 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 criminals go free. So he decides that he's going to um, basically buy a tractor trailer rig and open a courtroom, a secret courtroom in the back and travel around to various venues and capture criminals who have escaped the system and put them on trial in secret. So throughout the three books, he is always in conflict about whether he's doing the right thing. He's achieving justice. And he says at times, well, who wrote the rules? Men wrote the rules, basically. Sometimes women wrote the rules. And sometimes the rules are, are you know, decades old and they don't work anymore. Um, but he decides that since these are man-made rules, I, as a judge, have the ability to make some of my own rules in order to achieve the ultimate justice for these victims. And that's what we delve into with, with Raleigh Westlake um, throughout all three of the books. Interesting. Wow. Me being a smart aleck, <laughs> a, a trait that I, I both embrace and frustrates me. Wow. I, I was not expecting, I was not expecting to find out that your judge in your book faced, you know, the, the same dilemma of whose rules, who, who set these rules and why, and, and so forth. That's To add a complicating factor, um, the judge was also raised Catholic. And so he has a moral code that's been passed down to him, um, you know, through Catholic dogma. And at times his moral code is, is challenged to say the least. And at other times he just breaches it outright. So he, he's an interesting character, but I, I think, you know, I, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I certainly can speak to myself and other people who um, I've met with whom I've had these types of discussions that I think most people think about breaking rules from time to time. And some of them are simple, you know, you, you breeze through a stop sign or, you know, you run a red light or something like that. And some of them are, are, are more complicated and, and uh, have more of an impact on people's lives. But um, sometimes the rules are, are so confining and they're so antithetical to the result that they were designed to achieve that you have to dispense with them. At least that's the, the major question that I'm hoping readers ask as they go through this. You know, if, if you have, just as an example, and I'm not, I'm not an advocate for any position or another, but if, for example, you have someone who has created multiple violent crimes and he goes out and commits the murder, right? After maybe he's committed sexual assault and uh, aggravated robbery and assault and battery, and he goes out and, and commits the murder. And there's a case where this something similar to this just happened in Memphis that we've probably all read about. And then the question is, why is this guy out in the first place, right? Now, maybe I don't know what the circumstances were that led him to be out, 
But you have to wonder if there are situations in which an individual wreaks so much havoc on the system that that person should not be allowed to live among us. And that's really the quintessential question that, that Raleigh Westlake faces as he's confronted with these various criminals who have not been brought to justice. Okay. Interesting. Wow, you bring up some interesting points. <laughs> yeah, and we don't have all day to talk about this. No, no, <laughs> and I'm most certainly not qualified to, to quote-unquote go there either. <laughs> well, it's, like an, it's an internal debate, I think. <laughs> it is, because I like my life simple, and and, you know, you're right. Having the moral code um do no harm unto others is is a big one that we all face and we all we try i mean i'm i'm sure the majority of people do try very hard to maintain that do no harm unto others uh or at least without the you know without the intent it could be unconscious or or you know something that they don't realize that they're doing but anyways, that's a whole other topic that, yeah, we don't need to travel down. <laughs> so for you to write the trilogy, how long, how long did it take you to do the three books? Um, so I wrote the first, well, I guess I wrote most of all, first two and most of the third book while I was still practicing law. So it took me about three and a half years okay. to get there. Um, I didn't start out to write a trilogy. Uh, I started out to write a standalone book about this judge who, who is a vigilante, and the 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 word vigilante is sometimes misconstrued. Vig vigilante is just someone, technically, literally, who just very watchful. Uh, but he strays outside the law, and he knows he does. And when I got about two thirds of the way through the first book, and I began to layer in the complexities of the character and how he dealt with different dilemmas and um, setbacks and things like that, I realized that I couldn't tell his story in one book. Okay. And, and so um, I, I built a, a thrilling surprise ending to the first book in order to bridge it to the second book. And then in the second book, um, I introduced uh, a female character who, uh, was a uh, ex-prosecutor, and she's on a quest to find the man who murdered her sister. And so she kind of goes off the rails a little bit um, and loses track of what she's trying to do. And that brings additional complexities in, which did not allow me to finish her story and the judge's story in book two. And, of course, they face this incredible dilemma at the end of book two, which then leads us over to book three okay. uh, and 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 raleigh raleigh evolves from the ultimate verdict to ultimate deception to ultimate truth so that uh the vast majority of the threads are resolved in in the third book so what ultimately what led me to write three books was uh raleigh westlake and his complex personality 
<laughs> he sounds like he's got a complex personality. He does. <laughs> like somebody you would have, you know, want to sit around a campfire and just listen to. <laughs> you know? Go ahead, tell me the next story. <laughs> you know? um, anyway, so with writing, we, we already talked about editing just a dabble because as you said you're recovering perfectionist and that is something that a lot of writers you know I've talked to I'm going to reword it this way I've talked to a handful of writers who thought who were really upset at themselves because when they wrote their draft their first draft they expected it to be or anticipated, not expected, they anticipated it would be published ready, that all they would have to do is give it to an editor, they would just correct the grammar, maybe a couple of spelling errors, and done. They had, you know, they were flabbergasted at the fact that, oh my gosh, I got to rewrite this book. And of course, they took it very personally, and it was self-defeating. And then I've I have writing friends that they anticipate to rewrite that book at least five times that, you know, this is, this is the foundation. Okay. Now I need to build a scaffolding in the next one. It's the, okay. I need to put, you know, the, the OSB boards on the outside of the structure and then finally design the interior quote unquote. Um, that the process is transformative. With going back and editing, and, and it doesn't matter if it's Ella's Wing or if it's one of the trilogies, what part of the whole editing process really just got you to see that there, there's a way through this editing and that wow, I'm going to have a really good book on the backside of this? Uh, boy, that's a great question. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how to answer it. I think that, um, so I, I changed my, my nomenclature a little bit. Um, I use a developmental editor uh, who is invaluable in assisting me with with getting the proper story out there a lot of people use beta readers and things like that but i don't really have the patience to wait for beta readers and have to talk to each one of them so i changed my nomenclature from editing to rewriting okay. and if you if you understand you know maybe maybe there are writers out there who are good enough to you know do a couple of edits and and boom it's out there um most of the people I talk to spend a great deal of time trying to get the story right. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're working on grammar or spelling or punctuation or things like that. It means they're trying to get the character's voice right. They're trying to get the dialogue right. They're trying to get the setting right. That they're trying to be true to the characters that they've created. And at least for a novel, I don't know if I've heard of anybody who's fewer than seven to 10 revisions um, <laughs> or, or rewrites, you know, the first, the first one, the second draft is a rewrite. I mean, it is a, it is a re-sculpting when you were mentioning, you know, you put in the foundation and the scaffolding um, on a couple of my books, I have had to blow up the foundation 
and 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 take those pieces of rubble and cast them away and then go back to it. Ella's wings took 23 years to write. Now, it took that long because the first couple of uh, versions that I wrote were terrible. Okay. They, they didn't they didn't tell her story the way I wanted it told. They didn't have a real voice. And so what I did, I've had that that book in the drawer for a long time. And it, it, she's a very compelling, likable character. You really want to root for her. So when I finished The Ultimate Truth, I had in that book a person who was a victim of a terrorist act. And I realized that I was writing about crime and punishment and the actions of the judge and the attorneys in these, in these secret trials, but I really wasn't writing about the victim. And so I decided to recast the story the Ella's wing story from her point of view. And so it is told in first person present. And as a little, uh, um, you know, interesting nuance to it, her story parallels the timeline of ultimate truth up to about half of the Ella's wing story, but through the complete version of ultimate truth. So what I did, and I don't know anybody else has ever done it. I'm sure someone has. But what I decided to do is to give the reader a choice about how to read and understand Ella's story. So obviously, there's the traditional way in which you can just read Ella's wings from cover to cover. And okay. she tells it from her perspective. But then there's another way where you can read Ella's Wings, and you can read portions of Ultimate Truth simultaneously. And with the with the second uh, method, with including Ultimate Truth, you get a whole different perspective about what Ella's going through because you learn things from an omniscient point of view that Ella just simply doesn't know. Wow. So, so in the opening notes of the book, I have a suggestion to readers, you know, you can read these chapters of Ella's Wings and these chapters of Ultimate Truth, and, and that's how you get there. And then, um, and, and it does give you a completely different view of her story and what she's going through to read it in the different, in the alternative methods. That is impressive. That would be mind bending to write to to read this, read, you know, read this book, then go to the other book, read that section, come back to the other book and going back and forth. Wow. Talk about, you know, you're right. A very, very unique reader experience because it's so expansive. And they have the opportunity for that expansion. And to write first person and in present time is not easy either because, um, or in present tense, excuse me, is, is not easy. It's not what easily flows. We're, it's easy to write third person past tense. 
Sure. Sure. It's, it's kind of the default, um, especially when you're writing a thriller, because you get to add the different perspectives of all the players when you're writing in third person. And, and, and that's the difference in first person. I'd say, I'd say um, in terms of complexity of character and difficulty of the narrative, Ellis Wings was probably as difficult as line before it. And I'm, I'm writing it from a woman's perspective, right? And I was reminded that I'm writing this maybe, I don't know, somewhere between a hundred and a thousand times of the adage that says, write what you know. And I obviously know nothing about um, what, what women really, really think and how they navigate through the perils of life and even less about how someone who's a victim of a terrorist act does that. So I had to do an extraordinary amount of research and I relied very heavily on my development editor who is a female um, and, and a, a real blessing for me to tell me is the voice authentic? Because that's the, that's what you're worried about, right? I mean, right, right. if I, if I started, if, if as a lawyer, I started writing about, uh, you know, a heart surgeon, um, I have no idea what a heart surgeon feels, you know, at that moment when when she is repairing, you know, someone's uh, atrial valve. No, no idea. So I would have to do a lot of research. So that was one of the rules, as you mentioned earlier, all these rules and who made up these rules. That was one of the rules that I broke is I wrote something I didn't know anything about, but I learned a tremendous amount in the process. Oh, I'm sure you did. So then your research, did you talk with women and say, okay, if you were in this position, how would you feel? Um, to a certain extent, I did. More what I did is I went online and listened to people talk about their experiences. And uh, something of a spoiler alert, um, Ella Ella uh, loses her arms in this bombing oh. and there, I don't know if the website is still up, but there, there was a website that was devoted to women who had lost their arms. Either they were born without arms at birth or they had lost them in some, you know, an amputation or something. And it was called the amazing feet F E A T S of armless women. Okay. And that website provided me an incredible amount of information about how women navigate life without arms. Just amazing things that in my imagination I could have never thought that they could do. I mean, you know, flying an airplane, um, shooting a bow and arrow. Uh, riding horses, driving cars, just these incredible things that these women do. So they taught me a tremendous amount about what's possible for someone who has suffered this particular type of disability. And what that did is it took Ella from kind of a pitiable character who would probably never be able to climb back out of this hole that she found herself in to a character with, with hope and who was 
absolutely committed to her own redemption despite all of the odds. So that's the kind of research that I did as opposed to talking to people uh, directly about. That's interesting. You went outside of quote unquote the box because my first thought is you talk to women about this and that and how would you feel, you know, asking them and assuming that it was women you knew. And, but to go to that source of women that you don't know that have gone through traumatic event, it really must have opened your heart and, and, and compassion for what your character has gone through, you know, it just expanded your compassion for how does she navigate life? And, and that's an element that shows up on the page. You know, when we, when we have that, that insight, I guess that shows or the compassion because our emotions as a writer, whether we want it to or not, they show up on the page. Sure. Through dialogue and and stuff. And and that was, you know, that was kind of the, the original dilemma uh, with Ella is that I created her. I put her through the terrorist bombing. I put her through the loss of her arms. And so I had to kind of get past that and realize that, you know, I couldn't as an, as an author, I couldn't pity her for that. I had to, I had to give her some ability to seek redemption. And, you know, on the questions that you're talking about, it's really interesting because I I mean, I say, I don't know, you know, I don't really know what, what a woman might feel in certain situations. Well, in certain situations, I do know, you know, I have, I have, you know, I've lived my most of my life with women and I talk to women and I I understand that. But there are certain things that are very difficult to ask face to face. So, for example, in this book, there's a, a very difficult relationship between Ella and her mother. And how do you go to any woman that you know and say, tell me how you would react if you found out that your mother hated you? Right. I mean, it's, it's those type of deeper, deeper probes. Number one, it's hard to find a person who you could talk to about that. But number two, I'm not sure you would always get an, you know, an honest reaction because maybe that person hasn't experienced it or they don't know how they would feel about it or they don't want to tell you. Or they don't right? want to tell you. They don't want to tell or, you. Or if they do tell you, is it, is it the truth? Or is yeah. it the perception? Is it their interpretation? Right. And and so yeah, that that does pose that question of authenticity. And yeah, interesting. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask is in regards to like your marketing and your editing. Did you find yourself this whole process like creating a a business or, you know, did you start writing and then, okay, I I did this. Okay. Now it's time to edit. Okay. Now it's time to market or was like marketing always something, you know, the end goal, was that something that was always on your mind about how am I going to get it from here to here? 
Um, in terms of the creative process and having a finished product, yes. Um, I was a journalism major in college. I've written all my life. There are people who have read my legal briefs and said, well, he's always been a fiction writer. This isn't anything new. <laughs> you know, you have, you, you have mostly other lawyers uh, who say that. Put it together. How do you? How do you? Um, you know, go from I know that I can be one hundred percent committed to it is selling the product that we created. Um, I think, like most, you know, like most authors, I I don't like that part of it. Um, it's not fun. I will have to say that doing podcasts seems like uh, it's a lot easier, and it's not really work. And so if that works, um, you know, I'm all in on that process. But in terms of like sifting through data and trying to come up with keywords and trying to figure out uh, how to advertise and all of that, it is it's a hot mess. And I don't really want any part of it. And I don't know that I even want to go to the reaches of hiring someone to do it for me. But I was asked a question recently along those lines, like, well, what do you do to, um, you know, make sure your books are, are a success once you put them out there? And the answer is, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's the great mystery question. I've talked to writers. I've talked to publishers. You've talked to publishers. And the answer I typically get is, it's some sort of magical amalgam that if anybody really understands it, they're not telling. <laughs> and, and I, you know, and I've talked, I've talked to, you know, the guy who's the, who's the publisher at Macmillan and, you know, they, they, they do have some insight, but they don't always really know what works. And the example I gave when I was asked this question um, is that I had a I had a period of time about 10 months after I released my first book and before the second book was out when I had the best sales of of that book of any other book that I've had and I went back and checked my calendar and looked at my activity during that time and I was doing nothing remarkable so I have no idea why it took off when it took off. Word of mouth was definitely a factor. Luck is another factor. Yeah. But I cannot point to anything that I did as a writer or a marketer that caused that to happen. Isn't that funny how that works? It's <laughs> it, it's it, it it truly to me. It's truly a mystery. Um, I know that there are, there are PR people and marketing people and promoters who will say, well, it's not a mystery. You know, this is how you do it. And it takes a long, long time. And they may be right about that. Um, but here, here's, here's kind of the, the salve that I would give to, to other writers. If you're in a position where you have to sell books to make a living, probably you should do something else to earn a living. 
But if you're in a position where you really care about your craft and you care about your stories and your characters and you write those to the best of your ability by you and done, that needs to be done. There's principles uh, really that I think you should expect because the formula for how you get there is unknown. Yeah. Yes, very true. The and in some cases I I question some of those that some of the people who do the the classes and stuff like that or you know offer the master classes offer the you know free download book if are you still there Uh oh i'm frozen what i was saying before uh the internet dropped our conversation was we were talking about you know the the wisdom that's out there about how to publish and what I and I think where I lost connection I was saying that there are a lot of people out there that are you know creating these books that you know you can publish and be a best-selling author in in 90 days there's the master classes that tell you this is how you do it and there's a lot of these overnight gurus i'm going to call them that way there are a lot out there that are very talented and they know the process but there's also some of those that take advantage and especially since writing a book became really popular during covid and people had this unexpected time on their hands there were those that took advantage of those that are new to the process of writing and so what I was saying is, um, you know, there's a lot, you have to use your discernment too, when you're looking at how do you, how do you get from here to there? What are the best ways for marketing? What are, what are the ways that will work for me versus work for somebody else? Because our personalities do make a huge uh, impact on on how we move forward for those of us who prefer not to be in the spotlight we struggle and we have to do it differently than say somebody who absolutely loves center stage and come on i'm here hear me more here listen i've got this book there are you know <laughs> how they market should be different than the person who sits back going yep i wrote a book and then, you know, doesn't tell anything else. Right, right. Um, you know, again, I don't really have a, a, a solution. It occurred to me while you were talking, there is another way it would get you into trouble, but you could change your name to James Patterson or John Grisham and, <laughs> and publish, publish that way for a while. <laughs> but uh, eventually those gentlemen and their publishers will catch up with you. Yes, they would. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I... There are a lot of um, advice books about how to do it. I think 
if someone really had come upon the secret, they would probably be doing it themselves and not trying to tell everybody else how to do it is, is my oh. guess. Um, and it is, it is difficult in a world in which the written word is a secondary or tertiary way of, of giving entertainment. Um, it's difficult to, to get your, you know, your book out there. It's difficult to get, get, um, noted, but if you stick with craft and you write something really, really good, uh, the odds are that, that somebody will notice that. And, um, I was watching, Oh, I was watching a series not that long ago. I think it was the Queen's Gambit. And through a little bit of research, I learned that the gentleman who wrote it, whose name I can't remember now, who wrote the book, I think he died in the early 80s. And his book wasn't made uh, into something on the screen for like 35 years. Wow. And, and so, you know, that is an interminable time to wait, especially if you've already passed away. Um, it's just, it's just not something that you should expect unless you're big on disappointment. And I I think, I think disappointment can be one of those very high hurdles that a writer has to overcome. And you, you, you got to shield yourself from that. It's the reason that most writers say, you know, don't read your press clippings, right? Because you're going you're, you're gonna to center on that one that somebody says something horrible about you. And, you know, you may as well, you know, go back to teaching kindergarten because you can't really write anyway. Um, but if somebody finds a way to do it, I think it's, I think it's great if you can, you know, if you can get your voice out there. But, but don't be disappointed if people don't notice. Have a different goal in mind for what you're trying to achieve because if you're trying to sell a lot of books it's very very difficult well and and you know if you use that whole law of attraction when you (laughs) the whole concept of of pushing and pushing and pushing for a result what you're doing is, is you're actually pushing it away but once you sit back and relax and you just go on about life the best that you can, then all of a sudden that thing that you were pushing for, that you were searching so hard for, all of a sudden shows up at your doorstep because you've stopped that I have to have in order to feel X, Y, Z. So, you know, there's that concept too. Um, I do like the idea of using discernment and following your heart on it too, um, it, it, with the process, does it feel right? That's a big thing because if it doesn't feel right, if you're doing it, are you going to feel good? No. But if it feels right and you follow through with it, you're going to be much more receptive to what comes next. So, yeah, I I think that's right. I mean. You know, I'm I'm a little bit different in that, um, you know, I, I used to put myself out there quite a bit, you know, as a trial attorney. I mean, you're you're basically going out and, and telling a story and hoping people will see it your way and you're doing it to strangers. 
uh, for the most part, you don't really know the judge that well, and you know the jurors even less. Um, right. And so you, you kind of steal yourself for the fact that all you can do is your best, something that you're satisfied with, and you can't control what that outcome is going to be. So maybe that gave me a little bit more perspective on the publishing process. But, you know, I, I've experienced a lot of disappointment. I tried to go the traditional publishing route, you know, tried to get an agent, um, you know, felt pretty optimistic after going to a number of, of uh, writing conferences and pitching my, my story ideas. And then, you know, nothing really bit. And, and ultimately what I decided was it's more important for me to write my stories and get them out where people can see them than it is to wait for the machine whose workings I really don't understand at all to figure out that I've got something worth selling. And if I had waited, you know, for the traditional publishing route, I'd still be waiting now. Uh, and I wouldn't feel nearly as satisfied about my writing career as I do. Yeah, because your first book came out in what, 2017? I think, yeah, I think it was right at the end of 17. Yeah, so I, that's a long time to wait. But for many of those that have gone the searching and prospecting the traditional route, those years are not that long. So, um, yeah. And getting used to disappointment. How, <laughs> you know, the obvious question is, how in the world do you do that? But you know, that's a whole other topic. And we've already had a long conversation. And I just, because I just looked at what time it is. I didn't realize you know, the, the amount of time that has gone by, but real quick, getting used to disappointment or accepting it or allowing it to, to be what it is. What's the secret? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the secret is. I, I think be honest with yourself. Um, if you look at the statistics on the number of books that are published each year, you know, that are available for sale on Amazon, and you look at the um, number of books that are available out there, I mean, you know, in the fiction category, it's well over a million. So, right. um, you know, what are your odds of being noticed if you're one in a million? And I went to I, probably the most sobering assessment I ever got. I went to a, a, a mystery writers conference in Athens, Georgia, gosh, probably been 15 years ago. And there were a number of traditional publishers there and they gave us the statistics about what they published. And I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but essentially what they said is the number of traditionally published fiction books over the course of a year is 20% of the nonfiction books. At the time, there were fewer than 200 fiction writers in the United States who made their living writing fiction. There were some who, you know, worked as teachers and had other jobs. And the ultimate summary of this was that for a novelist, your chances were better of making the NFL than 
than of actually making a living solely writing fiction. Wow. So if you put it in that context and you change your expectations, something more realistic, that might be the easiest way to overcome disappointment. Yes. Yes. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not... I'm athletic, but I'm not that athletic to to try yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm both I'm both too big size wise and also too fast to play in the NFL. But aside from aside from that, I think my chances are good. Oh, oh, is there before we end our conversation? Two questions. One: Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah. So to that question, um, you can go to my website, which is Michael. Winstead, it's W-I-N-S-T-E-A-D dot com. And you can leave a message there. But I also welcome people to contact me directly by email. I'm not uh, a popular enough writer to have to have to uh, throw away most of my emails. And you can reach me at michael.winstead.author at gmail.com. And I love to hear from readers. Um, I prefer to hear the good stuff rather than the bad stuff, but um, <laughs> occasionally, you know, and I'll usually respond to you if I, if I have the time, but I love to hear from readers. It's very gratifying to hear that somebody's read the, read the book and enjoyed it. And sometimes they even ask questions and that's, that's even more fantastic. Yes. Yes. Because it, it tells you, well, one, it, it acknowledges that they, they read the book if they've got a question about it and want an expansion on the who, what, when, and where, and why. So that, yes. Um, The other question I have for you is what is one pearl of wisdom that you would share with that writer that's sitting on this fence post going, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do it? Um, well, I can't really help with answering the question of, do you want to do it? Because there are so many other competing factors in our lives that if you don't really want to do it, if you don't have a passion for it, then, um, you need to get a passion if you want it. But the most important piece of advice I ever got, I wish I could say it was original, but it's not is an author told me that she keeps lots of jars of butt glue around. And we <laughs> asked her, what, is, what does that mean? And she said, well, get some of it out, put it on your butt, and glue yourself to the seat, and you will write. So I think for writers who are on the fence, if you can find some satisfaction in the creative process and discovering your own abilities by sitting there and, you know, either dictating it into a microphone, if that's your method or typing it on a keyboard or writing in a longhand, if you prefer that if you can get some satisfaction in that. I think the effort will always be worth it. I think you will get rewards. If no other reason that you learn a lot about yourself you learn, you know, there's there's revelation there. There's sometimes there are epiphanies there. Sometimes there's resolution, you yeah. know. Um, 
So if you can find some way to, to sit there and hammer it out, I, I think it's worth it. I agree. I absolutely agree. There is something magical that happens when we connect with the characters, when we connect with the energy of the book, when we are in that moment and we lose our surroundings and we are so immersed in it that, you know, that that's the spot, that's the zone. And it is an amazing place to be. It is. Well said. It is. Well, Michael, Mike, um, thank you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate all of the insight and the wisdom that you shared. And I, I truly enjoyed learning about your judge, your character, and, and yeah, this conversation. I am very appreciative. Thank you. Well, thank you, Cindy. Thanks for making it easy. And thanks to your listeners and your viewers. You are very welcome. Before we end our time together, I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to my conversation with Michael Winstead. Any writer will tell you the best compliment is to know someone is reading our words, or in the case of this pen to paper press podcast episode, listening to our voices. Leave us a comment in the show notes page and share with us what resonated with you. Help us to spread the wisdom. Share my conversation with Mike on social media. You never know who needs to hear the messages weaved throughout our conversation. To receive future episodes in your inbox, subscribe to the Pen to Paper Press newsletter and follow the Pen to Paper Press podcast on your favorite app. You can find a link to his website and learn more about the books he has written by visiting pentapaperpress.com backslash podcast and select the show notes page for this episode. Take care and until next time, keep your pen to paper and write. Your words have power and your story matters. Bye for now.